everyone. This is Scarlett Lewis. I am the founder of the Jesse Lewis Choose Love movement. Thank you so much for joining us today. We have a very special guest today. I guess I always say this, but Sherry is very, very special. Her name is Sherry O'Loughlin, who is the chief executive officer of the Compassionate Friends. The Compassionate Friends is an international nonprofit organization supporting families after a child dies. It is located in 30 countries with over 600 chapters in the United States. She's the CEO of this organization now, and there's a reason for that. And as I'm looking at your resume, Sherry, I see um, previous to this, you were the executive director of the Children's Grief Center of New Mexico. And... uh, then you had your previous life. <laughs> and I kind of feel the same way. You can kind of look at my resume and you can see, ah, uh, chief movement officer is what I call myself of the Jesse Lewis Choose Love Movement. I see the date and this is like a new chapter in our lives of service, but it is because of a similar tragedy. Um, you lost your son, Connor, who was 15 years old. And we want to listen to your story a little bit today, but you wrote a book called Life from the Ashes, Finding Signs of Hope After Loss, which is such an absolute beautiful book that details your journey. And it's always so interesting, I think, to people that moms, you know, I, I can lose their most precious children and be able to turn that around somehow to make meaning out of the loss and to use what we've learned to help others. And that's exactly what you've done. And then you've taken it to the, the ultimate with being the CEO of Compassionate Friends. Welcome, Sherry. Thank you. That was a wonderful introduction. I think you covered it all. (laughs) That's it. Thank you very much. (laughs) It's great to be here. I appreciate being here today. Yeah, it's it's so nice um, for you to for you to join us. And I know that it's courageous for you to come on here to be willing to share your story. I know I tell my story over and over again, but it doesn't get easier. And I still feel this in my heart. And I have, when I give presentations, I have this little intro video. I say, those of you who've seen it, it's four minutes. And I see Jesse running around and it's like, I could ball during that time, but I know, you know, I'm, I'm wearing my professional hat and, uh, Sometimes I enjoy seeing it. Sometimes it's tinges of sadness, but there's always feeling there. And anyway, I know that you feel the same. And I thank you for being here with us. Absolutely. You bet. Thank you. And I know that there's a lot for me and for us to learn um, from your story. 
And, and, and even in our own lives, even if it's not the major loss of a child or, or a loved one, we grieve every day in different ways. And um, we can use what we learn through others modeling in our own lives to take our personal power back and move forward um, with personal agency to, to, to move forward with joy. I mean, that's kind of why we're all here. So can you share a little bit about your story with us? Yes, absolutely. And I, I really love what you said about um, the choice to share our story, because it is hard, and it really doesn't get easier. And in fact, there's been times where I think to myself, you know, it's the beginning of a work week, I don't think I want to share so much of my story that you know, I, I'm feeling kind of hard, I just want to rein in the that energy. And then somebody says, you know, wow, when you shared that, that just gave me another step forward. Or I felt that way. And I didn't think anybody else in the world felt that way. And that meant everything from my ability to find another step and, and find another path. And then that's when we, <laughs> we decide to be brave and share that. But it does take, um, take courage even today. So, um, and I do it in honor of my son, Connor, and in honor of my daughters, who are um, brave siblings and still with me as well. Um, because we do live in a culture that doesn't always honor talking about um, anything that painful and certainly not the past. We, our culture wants us to move on, pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, be strong um, and, and look forward and not backward. And so sometimes there's a lot of misnomers around that. And hopefully the work that we do to share stories helps change that over time. I love that you said that because I've found that uh, even in Sandy Hook, there was so much fear around mentioning the children's names or, I mean, if you come to Sandy Hook, you won't see a sign of them, <laughs> not on, not on the buildings, not, not in the buildings, not at the new school. In fact, they didn't want to put their names uh, anywhere near the new school. The parents demanded a plaque be put there before the founders, you know, the, the builders of the school could do their plaque. Um, and it was all out of fear. Um, and, even even my son going back to school, nobody nobody said Jesse's name. Nobody asked him how he was. You know, even like the rhetorical, "Hey, how you doing?" They didn't ask him that because they were afraid he would say, "I wasn't okay." So I love that you said that because. And then there are parents I, I know in Newtown that didn't want a memorial, and I know this because I was on the memorial commission, and they said because why do we have to drive around our town and remember something so painful? We have our kids in the back seat. We're going to have to explain what happened to them. And why should we do that? And we're just missing the point. We're so afraid of pain um, that pain uh, uh, is, you know, a little bit of, of difficulty uh, actually can strengthen us and teach us lessons. And, and if you don't have the courage to face the pain, you don't take anything away from the lesson. And it's definitely not honoring and remembering. So I love that you said that. And, uh, and, and I know that you in your position at Compassionate Friends 
have so much to teach us in that regard. Yeah, it, it, that's in fact what the Compassion of Friends is founded on. And it's really a fascinating story. Um, we're just about 50 years old in the United States and started in the UK about 50, 52 years ago, I think it was, or 53. And basically, there was a hospital there and there were two families, two sets of parents who had tragic losses happening at the hospital at the same time. One was an accident, a car accident, and one was an illness. And Reverend Simon Stevens, who's the founder of the Compassion of Friends, happened to be involved and understood that um, these two couples may be better off sharing their circumstances and talking about their losses because no one else could understand them. And that's a way that we feel very often in the world after a significant loss is we feel like we're on another planet and nobody can relate. And that, that happens in an instant when we have that loss and our entire life changes in that before and after way you spoke about earlier. And it was um, so healing for these two couples that they continued to do it on a regular basis. And about two years later, he figured out that there were many more bereaved parents who loved this model and wanted to be included. And it was the formation of the original chapter of the Compassionate Friends in the UK, England at the time. And what we know unequivocally is that um, offering the opportunity to talk about our loss is the only way actually that we move forward in any healthy way. And while most parents don't like the word healing because they feel like everybody's waiting them to be healed and be done, um, there is a path of healing and it's a progressive one and it's not linear and there's not a timeline on it, but we can move to a different place, a place that you spoke about earlier where we are sharing what we learn to make the world a better place, enjoy and honor and love of the person who died, in our cases, our sons. And talking about it is the key. So the Compassionate Friends offers and has offered um, the opportunity to have in-person support groups for people who have experienced similar losses. And it's peer-to-peer -peer support. It's been traditionally always in person. And now, of course, this last year, we went to virtual means and did what we needed to, to provide that across the country where, those, where, where chapters were able to adapt that. And we also now in our virtual world and even before COVID um, have a, almost 40 private Facebook groups that are part of the Compassionate Friends for similar losses. So for example, loss of an adult child or sudden loss or loss to homicide or um, infant loss. And so even though people aren't together in person, they're talking and they're sharing and grief is there and present no matter what happens. So it either gets stuck inside of us and creates dishealth, you know, bad health, or we get it out and we find ways to learn from it and to grow from it. And um, that's what we do at the Compassionate Friends. That's what you do through your Choose Love movement. And um, it is the way, counterintuitive to culturally how we've thought about it in the past, it is the way for people to move forward and find new steps in their tragedy and beyond. But it takes courage. <laughs> And I know that personally, because I was asked to speak at a Compassionate Friends conference a couple of years ago in Chicago, and it was in a hotel, a huge um, dining room, you know, where they have, they just opened up the whole thing. It was really big. There were a lot of people there. It was a big conference. And I remember I, I couldn't, 
I couldn't walk into that room. I was supposed to be going on stage and giving a little talk uh, about choose love and loss. And I, my body didn't want to go into that room because I didn't want to be like those people. I thought I, I this, these, I'm not, I don't want to be one of them. I just didn't want to be a bereaved parent. I know that sounds ridiculous. I am a bereaved parent, but I didn't want to belong to a group or maybe be surrounded by so much pain. It was scary to me. And I finally went in, I found my table and, uh, and I realized very quickly that these are my people that, that I belong here, that it was the first time really that I felt like I was just in a space and I was just comfortable and I could let my guard down. And I, uh, I think I may have told you this before in a previous conversation, but um, we had a little raffle and we looked under our seats to see who had the number for some gifts in the middle of the table. And I won the teddy bear. It has a little compassionate friends t-shirt on it. It has the year and I sleep with that teddy bear because that experience was really meaningful to me. And I had a whole different perception of compassionate friends and what you all do for, for so many, um, that you are the light in the darkness and it's pretty amazing. So uh, it's, it's a really important organization. And, uh, but I do, I want to get back to your personal story and, and why, I mean, we're having this conversation right now because we're both bereaved parents. So that has brought us together and, um, and, and in different ways, similar to the start of compassionate friends in different ways, but the pain is the same. Um, will you share your story with us? Yeah, definitely. Um, like you never in my wildest dreams, did I imagine I would be a bereaved parent? Um, you know, the words bereaved and grief are not that enjoyable of words. They're kind of heavy and <laughs> they don't feel that great. And it's not a club anybody wants to join for sure, which is kind of a common saying that we say, although, as you said, um, it is a place uh, to find some tremendous hope and comfort and joy, um, even eventually, if, if we do have that experience. Um, I have three children. And uh, at the time in 2012, my daughter, my oldest daughter, Mackenzie, had just turned 16 and my son, Connor, had just turned 14. And my daughter, Erin, was a few weeks away from turning 12. And uh, that was kind of my happy package and my perfect package in my life. And um, really blessed to have to have them and to be a mom to those kids. And uh, my son, Connor, was uh, three weeks away from starting high school and his close friend, also named Connor, and my Connor was actually 14, the other Connor was 15. Um, They went on a guy's trip with uh, Connor Porter's father, Pat Porter, who was a pilot, and they went to Sedona for four days and just had all the, you know, cool things you could imagine, pink Jeep tour and shooting range and hiking galore and uh, rock climbing and rock collecting and Mm. ice cream at all hours of the day and whatever kinds of fun things they could do. And uh, Mike Connor was a real nature lover and um, loved natural experiences and the outdoors. And so it was really 
um, just perfect for him. And uh, I was working full time and, and it was a Thursday, you know, my plan to work and to pick my daughter up from her horse camp at the end of the day, because it was summer, July 26th, and take Connor to soccer practice when he got home. And uh, unbeknownst to me, the uh, airplane crashed on takeoff uh, coming from Sedona back to Albuquerque. And, um, you know, my life changed in an instant in a way I never, never could have fathomed. And so that's a long journey. It's even now a hard one to remember. It'll be nine years in uh, July. And um, you and I were very similar in timing because Sandy Hook happened just that December mm-hmm. afterward, which I've, I've always felt real connected in that way. Um, and we were, you know, blessed to have a lot of friends that could rally around afterward and, and help, you know, with the normal things, bring food and um, make sure we drank something, drank water and tried to eat and things like that. But um, as you know, your life just, it's an entirely different life and it ends in an instant and you have a new one, whether you asked for that or not. And uh, it's, it's a journey we never wish on anybody. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you mentioned the before and after by, by profession, I'm a business person and spent much of my career in business roles and on the nonprofit side, really in volunteer leadership roles. Um, and at, at the time, I did go back to my company, uh, you know, within a reasonable time afterwards and, and was grateful that they worked with me the best they could. I was actually the COO of a company at that time in Albuquerque. And I remember the challenge of, you know, having people wanting you to lead, which they were used to you doing a week ago and, you know, couldn't understand. I I couldn't get off the couch or take a breath and trying to navigate that world. So um, I stayed with my company for a good period of time after that. And then uh, eventually started my, left that company and started my own business in consulting and coaching. And um, part of that was the balance of family because my younger daughter was still at home and, you know, being gone 12, 14 hour days was not compatible with being a brave mom and raising a young brave daughter and sending one other one off to college. Um, But also it it allowed me to um, do work in my normal work arena, which was some, some consulting around businesses, but also working with um, professionals in who have experienced loss and grief and how to harness that energy and see what comes after that, because that's not something that we have in much leadership training. And yet it's amazing how many professionals there are in the workplace who experience that. And we don't just go back and open the door we opened last week and as the same person, as you know, so what on earth do we do? To walk through that is is what I was working with, and um, I ended up at the Children's Grief Center because my kids had used that service, and I was asked to be on the board afterward, which I was happy to give back to, and inadvertently ended up stepping into a, an interim executive director position when when their executive left and stayed there for a while, and and then here we are at the Compassion of Friends. And again, I, I never would have imagined this role because you have to be a brief parent or sibling or grandparent to even uh, have that entrance card with the other, other things as well. But uh, when it came across my desk, I remember being very surprised and thinking, 
that's a really good fit. <laughs> Again, I'd rather not it fit because I, I would give those things back in a heartbeat. But um, it was a way to, you know, use to combine the before that you talked about and the after into something honoring and meaningful and um, affect change and information and thinking and understanding and education and support on a, on a nationwide level. So I was very grateful um, to work through that process and find myself in that role. So I want to delve a little bit into your actual journey. So we have this formula in the choose love movement and it's courage plus gratitude, plus forgiveness, plus compassion and action equals choosing love that comes directly from Jesse's message of nurturing healing love. So we've talked about courage and in your book, you reference gratitude a lot. Mm -hmm. And I know why you do that. Um, but you say that, you know, in the beginning, obviously you had a lot of difficulty in feeling gratitude. That's not surprising. <laughs> um, how did you turn that around? Because I think that that's a question that I get a lot too. Um, how do you feel grateful when you've lost your son in a, in a, in a plane crash and your, your entire world is shattered. How do you dig yourself out? It takes time uh, and patience. And I don't know that commitment somehow that I think sometimes comes from outside of ourselves, even um, certainly my daughters were a huge part of that. Um, they drove me to be better, even when I didn't want to be in, didn't have any ounce of energy on a certain day to be. Um, and I'm grateful for that. Um, you know, uh, definitely at the beginning, I don't know anybody who really uses the term grateful, even if maybe the seeds of that are, are coming to play. Um, and in hindsight, maybe it's better to understand it. But I, I do remember just... For so long, I don't know exactly how long that is, days that turned into weeks, that turned into months, and probably at least through the first year, if not the second, I just remember thinking, okay, uh, you know, I'm going to try to do better this next day. I'm going to try to find more gratitude. I'm going to try to find more light. And some days it was really, really hard. But again, my daughters and just trying to honor my son. Uh, one thing I knew, he was so joyful about life. He was very pure energy. He was awesome. And Connor would just, you know, hate it if I didn't get up and, and live life to the fullest and live life in his honor, in his memory, and as joyfully as I could over time and for my daughters, his sisters. So uh, I read voraciously afterward. I just needed to find anything that could tell me why this happened? What did I do wrong? How did I find myself in, in this position? How does anybody work through this? And I read your book and each, each different book sometimes gave me a nugget or a piece, which was really important. Um, and I still felt there was a lot missing. I couldn't find that's probably why I wrote the book because there were, there were pieces I couldn't 
find and, and I was motivated to share my experience around that. But I read in a few different places about gratitude. And in particular, I read uh, Tracks of a Fellow Struggler that was written by a minister. And I read Dennis Apple's book. He's one of our keynotes, um, who's a minister and talked about his struggle. And, and my own grief counselor was a minister as well. And and he was a bereaved parent. And I just remember thinking, if, if they lived a life of believing that they did the right things, bad things wouldn't happen, and it still did, and they found their way after, somehow there's something to that. There's something I can find there, and gratitude just kept popping up. So it really started very small, um, because exactly, I remember thinking, I can't find this gratitude. How? When would I ever feel that after this tragedy? But Did you explore in your head that you had done something wrong that may have caused the tragedy? For sure. On, on practical levels and then on all the crazy levels we can come up with. And and for what it's worth, being with compassionate friends, uh, almost all bereaved parents do, even if, if from the outside it doesn't even seem remotely possible that there was something involved. Um, they died of a, you know, somehow of a, a disease that is not hereditary and there's no cause to it and there's no parents will still will still feel that. So certainly I did. And well, I know that Jesse's dad. Uh, Neil, he wasn't going to send Jesse to school that day because Jesse woke up and he was not acting like himself. And he just kind of was acting like he wasn't feeling well. And so he thought, you know what? I, on a normal day, he would not have taken him to school. However, that day we were supposed to meet at the school to build gingerbread houses. And so that's why he brought him to school that way. But he struggled with that. And, uh, and you know, my mind even went to places uh, that, that I could uh, be held responsible. So I totally get that. Absolutely. Guilt is a big one. And um, at some point we have to release ourselves from it, even if it seems like that's a really hard thing to do. And uh, it's amazing how many times that story, like you told of wasn't supposed to be there, but was, is involved and people have their own views spiritually and and religiously about why that may or may not be. But sure, definitely there, that was a, when Connor went on the trip, it was a really unusual time for him to go. Um, We normally had all sorts of things that he never would have been able to go. And for some reason, the universe opened up his schedule that week. And uh, there was no reason for him not to go, even though it was normally full of soccer. And we normally had a family, uh, annual family picnic on that day that nobody missed and all sorts of things like that. So um, So there's forgiveness of yourself, uh, you know, because you have that guilt and you do have to let it go. You have to release it because it will, it will remain with you and, and negatively impact you in so many ways. And, and it's, it's amazing. It really is just a thought, you know, that guilt. And when I, when, even now, if I have some time and I, and you address this too in your book and I let my thoughts go, they can go there still. They can. Yeah. But what help is it 
it's exactly. a and we maybe have to spend time there in the early years, but especially if we have other kids to raise or we have relationships and work and family and, and partners or whoever may be in our lives, it just doesn't feed anything positive and we do have to forgive. And, and again, I think there's also a bigger picture, you know, do we control everything? Is it all our say? Is that all about us as earthly parents? And and some people feel yes, some no. But part of that forgiveness is understanding there's things we can't explain and there's things we can't know. And um, we don't control all that. We're not all, all powerful. And, and We can't control sometimes what happens to us, but we can control how we respond to it. And that's we are talking about thoughtful response right here. I love in your book where you say, um, so going back to gratitude, one of the most difficult times to feel gratitude is when we have lost something major or precious. The conscious reminder that I had so much remaining was hopeful for me. Centering more of my mindfulness around what I had was still very difficult to do because my grief was so heavy, but it was also a new possibility that I thought might help. I began a proactive gratitude practice over time. You, you say at first, my feelings of gratitude were tenuous when intertwined with my pain over time, I went from being able to express gratitude for three or four things each day to 25, then 50, then a hundred. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you would pick little, little things to be grateful for. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> but boy, was it a change in my path um, and made all the difference in the world. And you said the key word, it's mindful. It's mindfulness. It's not easy. It's not easy every day. And it takes a choice every day. Um, I, the way my, you can do many things, you can, some people journal, some people find a partner, you know, a friend and share them verbally each day. Some send an email, some say it out loud, um, for me, uh, it, walking and walking my dog and in nature was my way that really helped that, which is in some ways no surprise because Connor was so connected to nature and I was through him. But involving all the senses, all the senses with gratitude was a big step. So, I mean, I remember, you know, I, I, I would go in someone's yard and smell their blooming flowers. And a few times I got looks that were kind of a scans from the window, like, what are you doing in my yard? <laughs> but I would really, really breathe in the aroma of the flower in a way that I hadn't in the past. And I wouldn't really realize maybe what that experience was, but it weren't from my grief. And I had some gratitude around that. Or I would walk at a time that I would see the sun setting on the mountains in Albuquerque, you know, and it was just a silhouette or a halo in the most beautiful way. And I would actually stop and feel gratitude for feeling that and experiencing that. And, and feeling my son's presence at many junctures um, was something to be grateful for. Just for the dog at my side, she actually just passed away about eight weeks ago. We had to say goodbye to her, my older dog, who's 13 and, and went through all of that with us. But her, I was so grateful, first of all, for her getting me out. I don't know that I would have left the house each day and, and used my body if not. Um, and the, the funny thing she did or watching the world through her eyes or her habits and her dependencies and things like that all of that was something to be grateful for and um as i said in the book it just was so hard to start but a mindful practice every day sometimes i really could come up with more than i even had time to and i would just say them to myself you know as i was walking or think them that was my way 
but it, it didn't make all the difference in the world. And I still do that today, especially if I'm having one of those, ugh, you know, those funk days, you just are angry, fearful, negative, you know, worrying, whatever, stressed, and I can't get out of that. Uh, immediately, I say, you know what to do. And kind of makes me mad because I want to be beyond that. But I do a gratitude practice and I go to a different place. So it really, really, really works. And there is an endless supply of things to be grateful for in every one of our lives, even if we have suffered lots and lots of loss. It's just shifting the focus of your lens. And I tick off gratitudes all day long. I mean, I've become good at it. When I feel myself going there, I just go right to gratitude and it literally neuroscientifically strengthens your brain. And uh, we can only think one thought at a time. It's pretty interesting. So we can only think a lower energy, sad, negative thought or a grateful thought. So in the choose love movement, we call gratitude, the great mind shifter. And it really does work. Um, you talk, uh, one of the quotes out of the book, which I actually rewrote because I thought it was great. Uh, the greatest discipline I have learned is to slow down and pay attention in our chaotic world. And when you talk about going to your neighbor's house and smelling a flower. Um, I resonate with that because before busy, busy, busy. Right. And, um, and now I do stop and I do look and actually I'll show you this. I have roses cut from my garden that are right next to me. I don't think that I would have done that before, but I want beauty all around me. And I notice it like I didn't before. I appreciate it. I think that intuitively we try to savor it because we can build up our stores and we can, it does strengthen us when we have our downtimes. Um, really important. You talk about being versus doing. And that is definitely a lesson. If you're open to it, that grief teaches you. Yes. Yes. No question. And many of us who are forced to walk this path are doers. We're big doers. And that worked really well for us. And we like it. We're good at it. So being is uh, tougher. But also, that's the only way we actually are still with, we talk about continuing bonds, continuing bonds is whatever form we take our child or the loved one that died forward with us. And it's a, a little different way of thinking because in the past people wanted us to move on from our losses, right? So that was then, this is now, and and the, the term I love is moving forward because we are much better off not just pretending that didn't exist, not saying their name again, not talking about them and, and trying to move into a different place in life. We take them with us. And many cultures have known this a lot longer than we have and have practiced it historically. And this um, process of being actually allows us to do that. I mean, I can feel, I can remember cool things about Connor that were so amazing. And I can feel them in my heart if I'm being. But if I'm just doing, 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 I miss all that. And and I don't ever want to lose that rich experience in my life. Mm, I, I agree. That brings me to, you had mentioned books. And I remember, too, wanting to read books, wanting to know stories of other people that had gone through this pain to see how they survived. Mm 
because at the time you're overwhelmed. And the first book that I read, I can't remember. I now I can't believe I can't remember his name, but it was on signs. It was actually a researcher that researched, um, that researched signs. I wish I could remember it. Um, it's not Bill Guggenheim, is it? No. What did he, what did he write? He wrote uh, signs from heaven or hello from heaven. No, but so the, the book that I read first was about signs. Mm-hmm. Um, oh no. The first book that I read was near death experiences. NDE near death experiences where people would um, have, would, you know, stop their hearts would stop beating for a little while. And then they would come back into their body and they would sell, tell these incredible stories. And it was, it spanned um, beyond religion. It was beyond countries and they were mostly kids and they were all the same, um, which made it real for me. And I thought that was really cool, but I also read a lot about signs and I was never a sign person before, but of course now I am, and I have gotten incredible signs as have you, and you talk so much about signs. In fact, uh, the, the, the title of your book is finding signs of hope after loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How has that helped you? And can you share a few that you've had from Connor? I've had so many there actually. Which ones, right? (laughs) Yeah, they're so ingrained in my being now. Um, Signs were so important because my upbringing was much more about death happens and it stops. Everything stops and you go forward to a next place without that person. So it really wasn't something I ever um, even thought about or knew could exist. And I didn't really have uh, an awareness of it. And Connor started um, giving signs very early on, which was so, um, so, so helpful. And um, I remember a few of them really profound uh, on the, <laughs> they say Connor was a real nature nature guy, and um, so was the other Connor, Connor Porter. And uh, they were funny together and dramatic, and liked you know big stakes and big things, and you know that kind of thing. And it was the one year anniversary, so it happened on July twenty sixth, and it was the um, turning to midnight on July 25th as going into the 26th and it really a paralyzing time for families because anniversaries are always challenging on those anniversary date we physically go back to that time even if we think that's silly and that wouldn't happen and or we think we're you know breathe so long we wouldn't experience that we have a very physical and cellular connection to that moment in time and especially in those early years I'm sure it's the same for you mm-hmm. you know the entire week before I, re- I remembered every decision every moment that led up to that because again our world turned off and a new one started in this instant right and so it's a very pitiful time it was painful and uh, I remember a big storm happened and Connor loved you know, the atmosphere and astrology and weather and storms and science and all that. And it was just this huge storm outside. And um, 
it was very profound, the timing, because it was um, moving into that time and it was culminating at the time that we, you know, that the accident would have happened. And after this major, major storm, which Albuquerque had never seen the likes of before, um, it culminated in a double rainbow. Mm. Mm. And again, on the outside, people can say, well, Sherry, come on, you know, statistics would show whatever. And that is totally fine. But we can feel signs as well as I mean, we don't we don't think everything we see is a sign. Most of us, when we see something, it also generally has a meaning, a timing, a person's a personal relevance and a purpose. And it all comes together in a feeling that we know. And that's what that was. And I just couldn't have asked for a better gift than that, you know, that double rainbow at that moment. So that was one that really, um, really stands out to me. And uh, I'm going to tell a funny one because it's a full almost nine years later. Uh, Feathers are a big one for me. And um, I talk about that in my book. And uh, I just moved from Albuquerque to Denver last week, actually, which is a big, big step because it's leaving um, this chapter that my son's existence was, but also a lot of pain was and a lot of love was and all sorts of things. But it's a good, I understand. yeah, good step in my life. And a couple of years ago, I was uh, looking for a house in the Albuquerque area and there were a couple possibilities. And I remember coming up to the house I eventually bought and there was a feather standing straight up by the door in an impossible way with nothing else around it like not lying down but standing up in this really bizarre way and I remember just thinking to myself I am kind of like in this house and it just felt like that was a very affirming sign because I had a lot of decisions I was making at the time and I looked at multiple houses, maybe 15 houses, whatever you look at in that time. I came back to this house. And the second time I came, another feather, a different feather, but similar looking, was standing up in the same impossible outside of nature, can't really happen way. And I just thought, okay, I I get it. (laughs) I I was going to buy it anyway. I'm, you know, checking it with my empirical data. I like it, you know, and, and all of that. And I haven't, seen a feather like that since that time what was a good house for me and my girls at the time and and time moved on well when I was selling that home just now in the last months making this move I had a lot of fear a lot of pain because there's a lot to let go of um excitement good things it's a good decision but but we we don't get to make that in a vacuum. We have to face the painful stuff too. Mm-hmm. I laughed so hard by myself out in the front yard because I was having one of those fearful, as you talked about, really painful days and and having to let go of stuff and trying to decide what to take with me. It's a lot different moving five minutes away. You know, it's a lot different moving out of state when we keep our children's things and what makes the most sense and all of that. And I came home. I was really sad. I had been crying and been thinking about, you know, leaving the cemetery there. I walk up to my front door <laughs> and that same feather, the same type of feather that I hadn't seen in over two years was standing straight up outside my door Wow! in a very, it, it's not possible to explain by science 
way. And I just laughed and laughed and laughed because because it was a great house for the time. I couldn't have known it at the time. And it was it was full circle. It was for me signs of yes. Okay, you double checked it again, yes. And yep, you're doing the right thing and it's gonna be okay. And that's it's just pretty amazing. It's it is amazing. It is unexplainable. And I think that people try to explain away, but I don't believe in coincidences. And I call them God winks. And I know the knowing. There's just a knowing, even if it's a penny on your the, the foot rest, you know, as you're walking into your car and there's something going on, you're right. It's the timing. And it's, it's, there's just an inner knowing and it's so comforting. And I think it's really important to have, you have to have an open heart and an open mind, but then you have that knowing and you know that even though your loved one died, they are still with you in spirit. Absolutely. And they're cheering you on. And when you're asking for help, they're supporting you and trying to say, you know, we're still together. I'm still here. I still feel you. I still care about you. And I haven't left you and I haven't abandoned you. And I think that's so powerful for bereaved people if, if that's an experience that they have. To understand that that's the case. I remember when a few of Jesse's friends came to visit him right after the tragedy, actually maybe a month. And the mom came in, there are three kids. And she said, you know, they're just really missing Jesse. Can you talk to them? And I said, well, what were your favorite things about Jesse? What are you missing? And one of them said, I miss his laugh because he was always laughing and always smiling. Um, The second one said, I miss his little jokes, his sense of humor. And the other one said, I miss the twinkle in his eye. And like you just said, those things are still with us. If we can be present and, and remember them, those things are still there for us to appreciate. And I think that that helped them at the time. I was like, help them help me. Just kidding. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and if I could just comment, um, because you said this earlier about, you know, the memorial and saying, you know, let's not put the memorial out. It'll make people upset. You know, we we carry our bereavement and we have learned the hard way how important it is to be able to share their story, say their name, talk about things that are beautiful. It's one of the most healing things imaginable. So I do want to emphasize this right now. If you're not sure whether to to say something to a bereaved person because you might upset them by reminding them that they're bereaved. Rest assured, they never forget their bereaved. Absolutely. <laughs> Anybody listening? And and most, almost always, someone will say, thank you. Thank you for letting me say their name, for letting me share their story. And when you talk about that happening in your town, you know, there were so many bereaved kids and they need a chance to talk about it. They're grieving in a way. They don't have to be brothers and sisters. They don't have to be cousins. They don't have to be best friends. They are grieving. They were present. They lost, you know, a a companion, someone like them at a a young age and are trying to understand the world. So 
they need to talk about it. We all need to talk about it. And nobody needs to live there forever. And the fear is we dwell on it. None of us can survive. They just need to talk about it. And I'm so glad they asked you because it was probably a gift to you to be able to remember those things and a gift to them to be able to talk about something. I love when people say Jesse's name. I I love... I love that they know his name, that they are repeating it. It's music to my ears. Mm-hmm. Um, I appreciate when people go out of their way to know the name of my bereaved son uh, and, and when they have the courage to address me about it. Because by the way, previous to my experience, I would have been one of those people who did not want to talk about it, who thought, ah, there's just so many people around them. And then, well, it's been a couple of weeks now. It's too late, you know, that type of thing. So I get it, but I learned the hard way what is appreciated. And I think that didn't compassionate friends start the whole, say the name, um, kind of movement, Yes. And um, it's interesting because we, on Mother's Day, uh, Ask Amy, which is a national column, contacted me and and they had, uh, she had a letter from a brave mom and it happened to be her only child who died. And the mom said, can you please share information that I'm still a mom? I want people to, I don't want people to forget and pretend I wasn't a mom because they don't see other mm. kids around me and I want them to ask me. And so Amy and I had a conversation and she wrote beautifully about um, saying their name. And that's exactly, thankfully, what I was able to share in that column on Mother's Day. And of course it applies for Father's Day and for other other days as well. But we do want the chance to say their name. I mean, they were such an important part of our lives and who we became. It wasn't just when they were physically present. We wouldn't be the people we are without them. And our love doesn't go away because they died. It goes on forever and it morphs and it changes and we change. But that is there so greatly that it's one of the greatest gifts that we can have is when someone asks their story, shares their name says their name, remembers them. Oh my gosh. It's a great, great gift. It really is. Um, so I, I loved, uh, that at the, towards the end of your book, you offer a self-care toolkit. Now you do it a couple times because you've obviously learned a lot and you're in a position to help a lot of people. Um, I'm just going to share a few of these things if you don't mind. Um, This is from your book. Uh, You say, over time, I developed a self-care toolkit. I kept a list of anything that gave me momentary pleasure that could help in those frequent painful moments of helplessness. My toolkit was personal as these were just things that I enjoyed and that helped to calm my senses in that moment. It contained the following. Do you mind if I share it? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Uh, texting for a short time with someone I loved, enjoying an exceptional cup of coffee that I stopped to appreciate. There's that mindfulness. Having a call with a friend or one of my sisters, taking a comforting and soothing bath, watching a gentle or hopeful movie, sipping a glass of good wine, listening to songs about loss that connected me with others who shared this experience, reading articles or books about grief and what comes after we die, enjoying a piece of delicious chocolate cake. I'm there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Listening to Connor's piano compositions that he created. Wow. Wow. Do you think that you could share one of those to open and close this podcast? 
the cup or comfortable? I don't have it handy with me. I would love to, but he was a composer from a piano composer from a very young age, and he just sat and made it up. And incredible. And then eventually he, we got him to write it down and then uh, and put it into the, the note structure. And um, so I'd have to share it at another time. Okay. Because back in that day, they were on CD. So not the same technology we have, but. Uh, I don't even have a CD player anymore. <laughs> <laughs> the day before, uh, I mean, the uh, year before he passed his last one, he did was actually a concerto he wrote with, for a violin, I know, and a piano and um, a cello. And it was, uh, it was just amazing, but it just came through him you know, through his, his being and came out. <laughs> when he was 14. He wrote that one when he was 13, but he started doing compositions writing. Well, he didn't write them. He started creating them and we had to get him to write them down because he just wanted to spend hours doing that. He started doing them when he was about seven. Wow. Okay. That's, in, that's really special. That's yeah, incredible. Cool. So listening to Connor's piano compositions that he created, listening to classical or Native American flute music to soothe my heart. Um, those are things that gave you comfort. And I love that. I think that anybody that's grieving should have a list similar to that, that you can go to during those dark times, because I kind of describe grief as uh, a journey, but it's, it's kind of like going up and down a mountain, right? Some days you're going up the mountain, some days you're going down and there are those valleys that are dark, but you will bounce up out of the valley. You will make a turn for the better. Um, and you can do it you have to work at it a little bit, but you can do it. And there are things that you can do. I think that's really important for people who are listening to know that there is hope. And um, towards the end at, of the book, you also offer a path to healing care kit. And this is something that you offer to people for free, which is really beautiful. Um, it includes shifting perspectives for deeper understanding, redefining you, new rituals and practices for healing, ways we can experience signs, uh, and a free 30-minute compassionate consultation. So do you do coaching for grieving parents? So before I started with the Compassionate Friends and the Children's Grief Center, as I mentioned, I have my own business and I still keep that up, although I don't have a whole lot of time for that to be the main focus with the Compassionate Friends right now. But I will always find time to do that. Yes, especially if it's about, um, you know, um, shocking loss, things we didn't imagine, how do we go on? Or if it's about continuing the workplace and finding our way when we have to keep going and working and we don't have any idea who that person used to be, then, then yes, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's so beautiful. Um, there is a compassionate friends conference coming up. It is July 16th to 18th. And, uh, we normally have an annual conference in person. And of course, with the pandemic, this is our second year that we're having it virtual, um, which is challenging sometimes to not be together in that space with the bears in the middle of the table and hugs and whatnot. But the nice thing about virtual that's really unique 
is you can do it from the comfort of your own home. Most of the sessions are recorded and you we have that recording for 90 days afterwards. So some people go back and listen to sessions again or sessions they wouldn't have been able to catch. It accommodates different time zones and, and so on. And it's just really a wonderful opportunity. There's about 125 workshops. We have four keynote presentations, including yours um, on Saturday evening, which we're really excited about. Um, we have a candle lighting program. We have a virtual silent auction and raffle. Um, we have a healing haven that even virtually we have ways um, to speak to mindfulness and self-care and this grieving process, a crafty corner, um, musical performances, lots of different things. So it's really a full weekend of um, compassion, community, support, information, education. And it can be if you're bereaved, but if you have someone you're in your life and you just want to learn better about what they're going through and how to support them, you can attend as well. So you can go right to our website, which is compassionatefriends.org. One word, compassionatefriends.org. It'll be the first thing that comes up is our annual conference. You can click on it for more information and um, everything you need to learn about it is there and to register is there. And Again, it includes um, having access to those afterwards so you don't have to sit in front of the computer the whole weekend to have the benefits of all of those. That's great. Well, everybody check out compassionatefriends.org. And Sherry, thank you so much for joining us today. Do you have any final words for our audience? Well, first, thank you for having me. It's been such a pleasure and I love connecting with you. And uh, ever since we met at that first Chicago conference, which was not long after for both of us. Yes, yes. And um, yeah, I would. I, I think that sometimes, um, you know, we can do what seems impossible. And uh, I none of us would ask to do that. And none of us think we're strong enough to do that. And we don't like it when people tell us how strong we are. That's not <laughs> what we're looking to hear, but we can find our way by taking it day by day, asking for help, talking with others, connecting with others. There's others who share our experience and we can actually find, you know, growth over time to give something back in the world in honor of the person we loved and, and in honor of the new person we are now um, that we fought hard to become. So there's hope wherever you are in your journey. What did you say? I had written it down that you don't have any patience uh, anymore for trivial things, trivial matters. And, uh, and, and I find myself being the same way. I, I want my conversations to matter. And uh, I, I, I remember that's one of the things that I said. One of my friends was calling me up and talking to me early on about paint colors and I was just like, are you kidding me? Like, I can't have a conversation about paint colors. Then I tried to, I tried to do it like, come on, you've got to meet her on her level because that's where she is. And maybe you don't have to be so intense all the time. Maybe kind of talking about paint colors would be good for you, but I would prefer, frankly, to have a conversation with you like this that's, that's, uh, that really is, I guess it's serving other people. I'm learning from it. I know people that are listening to it are learning. Um, I feel like, you know, we have 1440 minutes a day and there's so much to do. There's so many people that are hurting and suffering out there. And there's so, so many ways that we can help them that we can't waste any time. 
<laughs> exactly. Exactly. I laugh about the pink colors because it's not to minimize, as you said, maybe that's that person's biggest decisions, but it sounds cliche, but when it's not till you lose tragically that you really understand the loss of time. You can't get anything back. So don't waste any of it if we can, um, whether that's missing opportunities to have gratitude, whether that's missing those small pleasures in your toolbox, whether that's, you know, choosing to connect. I, I often say to people, you know, I know it's uncomfortable to ask somebody about their grief. Like you, I was like that before me. I learned this from people who did it better with me. So I own that and fully admit that I was not great at all about it. I was scared and I just didn't want to do it. And I always say, uncomfortable. Yeah. Just take that chance. Cause you know what, if they didn't like it, they'll tell you and you'll both move on. But nine times out of 10, you might find the most amazing connection you never would have found if you just didn't ask that simple question like, how are you doing today? What what does Mother's Day feel like for you? Is that okay if I ask that? Oh my gosh, the connection you can have from a simple open question like that. We just go to a place of depth in the world we never got to go to before. And we don't, we can waste our moments or we can do that as often as we can. And I don't have you know, I have less patience for <laughs> wasting them than I used to. That's sure. funny. And love is connection. Yeah. So that's actually love when you have the courage to go there with somebody. And that's a beautiful thing. And it's what we all want and need. And the other gift I think that we've been given as bereaved parents is perspective, the understanding that there may not be tomorrow. We woke up just like you did. Yes. But one day, it was a normal day. I was at work and my son was shot in the forehead. Uh, your son died in a plane crash. I mean, it was, we woke up just like everybody else. And we are just like, we are just like everybody else. We're just regular old people. And you know, I used to have this thought, well, I'd look at People Magazine and I would see like Columbine on the cover and I would I would see it. I remember thinking this, oh my God. Well, those things don't happen to people like me. Thank goodness, <laughs> right? Ooh, wait a minute, they do. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And when we're looking at that person in front of us that it did happen to, whatever it may be, that person who lost somebody to a terrible disease or to a tragic mass shooting or to an accident that just happened on the freeway in terrible weather, whatever those things may be, um, or, or some of the ones that can have more judgment, like an overdose or suicide, uh, probably don't say those things happen to other people. <laughs> and that's the opportunity to reach across the table and say, we are alike. And I'm not sure I can define why you're there and I'm here. I can count my blessings and I can connect with love and be there with you because I never know if that's going to be me. Yeah, absolutely. We're all in this together. I love Rumi's quote. We're all just walking each other home. And we have, we have today. Yeah, we have today. We can we can use it. We can we can have grateful thoughts or or not. But, you know, as you said earlier, you use the word choice and that is a big deal. Remind yourself that you do have a choice regardless of where you are in your journey. And you can take little steps forward to strengthen. I always talk about our thoughts and every thought that we have is either leading us towards languishing or leading us towards flourishing. So 
you can make those small steps, even if it's going outside and, and looking up and getting some sun on your face and taking your shoes off and putting your feet in the grass, um, small steps to strengthen. And then you are a little bit further along on that line. And, but it takes courage and it takes, it takes effort. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we just keep going our best every single day. That's right. That's what we're doing right now. So thank you, Sherry. Thank you. So good to talk with you and see you. Yes, absolutely. So thank you very much, Sherry. And thank you, our Choose Love audience. And we look forward to seeing you again on one of our events or podcasts. Thank you very much. And let's go have a lot of fun. (laughs) It's all part of us. We can all choose love It'll lift you up If you let it in Let the healing begin Thanks for listening to the Choose Love Podcast. Our positive, empowering messaging is reaching millions of people all over the planet. Join the worldwide movement to choose love. Our programming is in over 10,000 schools, homes, and communities across the country, in every state, and over 112 countries and counting. We're giving individuals of all ages the essential life skills they need to flourish. You can be part of the solution, too. We have sponsorship opportunities available that help support us and enable you to share in helping create a safer, more peaceful, and loving world. Contact me on our website, ChooseLoveMovement.org.